Thank you for tuning in to Aletheia Bible Fellowship. Today's sermon deals with pride of life, uh, specific to uh, race and social justice. Uh, today we narrow down specifically racism and Christianity's answer to how to solve that problem. If you have any further questions about what you see today or any of our other material, you can visit our website at uh, abfpdx.org, including our podcasts, which are available, um, such as Truth Time with Pastor Monty, which deals with these issues as well. So we're going to continue today to talk about this pride of life issue, specifically our identity uh, as, uh, as it works with race and social justice. Uh, next week, uh, we'll move on to another topic, uh, but for this week, uh, we'll continue with this and um, take a look specifically at the topic of identity and race, and also racism. Uh, we've talked about uh, the foundation and understanding of justice, uh, looking at the biblical model, uh, understanding uh, the, the truth that uh, God is justice. Uh, God is the definer for what justice looks like. We've looked at what the world has tried to throw at that to solve this problem, but minus God from that. And we know that we're in trouble when you subtract God from any issue. So the world has thrown things at injustices, such as critical social justice. They've thrown things like critical race theory into the mix to try to solve these many problems that we experience in the world. But we all know that if you just try to take care of symptoms and you never take care of the main problem, you're just going to create more issues. That's why every drug that a doctor gives you has a list of side effects. So it may reduce your inflammation, but oh, by the way, it may also kill your liver. Thanks. It may heal your heartburn, but eventually your kidneys will stop functioning properly. Wow. It may cure your depression, but you may have suicidal thoughts that may worsen as you take this medication. See, everything that the world tries to throw is a mere band-aid that has absolutely no adhesive power and immediately falls apart, creating even more issues. So we must define justice from a biblical model. We must apply the litmus test of God to all of the problems that we see in the world. It is the only proper way to address them at the source instead of trying to cross off these symptoms, only creating more issues as we go along. See, as, as Christians and non-Christians, we can see that things are out of place. Everybody can see that this world is not perfect. Injustices abound. Was it Marianne this morning asking for prayer for the world around us, the great tragedies that are taking place, the floods that are taking place, the rioting against governments that are taking place, and many more tragedies that are taking place because people are not receiving justice in their lives. People are not being treated fairly by other people. There has to be a different approach to what the world has tried to throw 
at these issues because it's just not working, it's insufficient. If you truly believe that the Bible is the word of God and it speaks to the condition of man, you must seek it out first to find out what to do. See, one of the problems is we've run into, a, as a society here, is that we seem to believe that if we read uh, this book here, it will help to inform what the Bible says to us, right? In order to understand the problems that are going on socially in the world, well, let's read this sociology book, and this will help to inform us in how we understand what the Bible says. Let's, uh, let's read about white fragility and the privilege that white people have in America, and that will inform us how we understand the Bible. It'll help to bring it alive for us. We're doing it backwards. See, the Bible informs sociology. The Bible informs how it is we are inter, you know, to interact with one another. The Bible takes care of all these issues and addresses all of these issues without the need for those books to inform it. Because we believe that the scripture is all-encompassing. The problem is, is we don't act like the scripture is all-encompassing. So when you come across questions like, do you believe that the Bible is the word of God? Do you believe that it speaks into the condition of man? Do you believe that Jesus is the son of God and his shed blood at the cross allows for a reconciled relationship with our creator? Those answers should be yes. When you hear questions like, do you believe that the Bible is a bunch of Jewish myths and stories borrowed from other cultures? Or even, do you believe that Jesus was a good man and had many myths from many different cultures associated with him? Apparently I'm going to squeak when I drink. See, where you fall in the answers to all of these questions is going to change the way that you think of the issues plaguing the world today. It's going to set things, right? When it comes down to it, you're going to be thinking either through the helmet of your salvation, which will fix your mind on God, or you'll just be thinking with this crazy mixed up head of yours. They're not compatible with one another, and they lead you to different paths. You're going to see things in the world that are not fair. And I'm not just talking about my little petty thing about somebody cut me off in traffic and it gets me all upset and in my head. I'm working on that, praise God. Real injustices, real unfairness. There is, no pun intended, a drive for us to see our fellow man get a fair shake in this world. Our hearts hurt when we see an unfair treatment. And if it doesn't, some would say that you're not human. It is part of our human condition to feel other people's suffering. Some of us are more sensitive to it than others. Some of us cry along when we see that strife. Amen. But does that feeling make sense if there is no God? 
Does that be, uh, feeling make sense if we are all out for ourselves? Does it make sense if we are simply just a process of evolution over time? If there's uh, no objective morality? The answer is no, it doesn't make any sense. It's not logical in thought and in process. So as we continue to take our journey to discern this year what it is that God is telling us as we face issues of our life, as we face all of these inputs, we must face the injustice of racism in the world. And it is not enough to apply Band-Aids or to assert blame. We must go to the heart of the matter. Racism, of course, is one of those hot topics in the news today, but it is not a new problem. In America, it has simply become based on the color of your skin. But there are people who look alike in skin tone, but they still experience racism against one another. There are people who you would not be able to distinguish their ethnicity by the way that they look, but yet there's racism between them. The, the issue is, is we're, we're seeking to value our lives, right? That's what everyone is searching for. I need to be valuable. I need to feel valuable. And I'm going to use subjective means to get there. I seek value in my life. I can't include God in that, right? So I have to seek that it will, that in and of itself is what causes the price. You have someone else, thus making When you consistently change those weights and measurements, you consistently find yourself devalued because it's not based on any firm valuation. The weights have been changed and they will consist. Did you know that there's an official kilogram that's in a safe in the UK? It's in a safe in a hermetically sealed box and it is the standard and weight of measurement. Unfortunately, it's losing mass. So even that standard weight and measurement is not what it was 10 years ago. We can't set a standard that sticks unless we look in the one place that created all things. The crowd, and so we find as many differences between me and you as we can.
right? Because if I can discover enough differences, maybe I'm unique enough and I have value. Because the only way to find my unique identity and to find my unique value is to separate myself as much as possible from you so that I have something that's different, something that makes me special, something that contributes, something that you don't. So what sets me apart? Uh, this is where the world throws things like intersectionality into the mix, right? Because I need to find something unique, I need to break down every single aspect of my life and see how many of those train cars I can fit into, right? Tear yourself down. Tear each other down. And then I take that train and I compare it to your train. And if I have more train cars, I am therefore more valuable than you. The world tries to find value by setting us against each other, by breaking us apart. Now, as Christians, we have an objective standard, something that is beyond our creation, something that doesn't consistently lose mass as it sits there in a hermetically sealed box in a safe. We have an objective standard that is better than anything that we ourselves could come up with. We are valuable, valuable not because we uh, have a, you know, certain changeable or unchangeable characteristics, right? Um, we are valuable specifically because our creator created us in his image. He found us so valuable that he sent his son to reconcile us unto him because he desired to have a relationship with us after we broke it off. He continued to pursue us, and he made for us a way to come back into relationship. Now, race, of course, the way that we've defined it now is pretty easy for people to define and, and see how it is that they can separate it. We can tell the difference in melanin level in our skin just by looking at people. No matter how long I stand out in the sun, I'm going to get red, if anything else but I cannot hide the fact that my skin is white. It's an easy to see defining factor, right? And since it's easy to see, it is easy to exploit. It is easy to take hold of. The definition of racism even has been altered many times to make it even more divisive. Technically, the Bible tells us, though, that we are all of one race. We are all part of the human race, created by our Creator in His image. If you look at Genesis chapter 1, we always got to take it back to the beginning, right? That's where we start, and that is where we find the solution to all of our problems. We begin in the beginning. In chapter 1, verse 26 through 28, then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and the livestock and all the wild animals on earth and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. 
Then God blessed them. So not only did he create us, he gave us extra value by blessing us and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it, reign it over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky and the animals that scurry along the ground. We've been blessed indeed. We are far more valuable than we could ever conceive in our minds apart from God. He continues on in Genesis in chapter 3 to point out that we all come from a common place. In Genesis 3, verse 20, it says, Then the man, Adam, named his wife Eve because she would be the mother of all who live. We all start from the same place. Even in the New Testament, it continues with that understanding. In Acts chapter 17, verse 26, it says, From one man, he created all of the nations throughout the whole earth. He created all of the nations. So the Bible is consistent throughout its message. The Bible stresses our likenesses and not our differences. We all have a commonality. We are all alike in that we're all made in the image of God, and everyone is part of the same race, a descendant of Adam and Eve. So let's continue with that thought process then. We know that we're alike. We all stem from the same beginning. Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, Paul writes, For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with his commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross, and our hostility toward each other was put to death. He brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him, and peace to the Jews who were near. Also in Ephesians 3, Real consistent here. And this is God's plan, starting verse 6. And this is God's plan. Both Gentiles and Jews who believe the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. Both are part of the same body and both enjoy the promise of blessings because they belong to Christ Jesus. And we'll follow up with Ephesians 4. Gotta love some Ephesians today, right? Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowances for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body, one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future, for there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, 
one God and Father of all, who is over all, in all, and living through all. It doesn't get more definite than that. No matter what we do to try to separate ourselves, we must understand that through Christ we have been brought together as one. That's why there's no longer a distinction between Jews and Gentiles in this regard. We have been grafted onto the tree, adopted as children of God. See, the church is to be the place where all ethnicities, where all races are reconciled and united. The problem comes in, yes, even into the church now, the problem comes in when we do not understand what happens at that moment that we accept Christ as our Savior. Many people use the title of Christian as something to earn to once again set us apart. Christianity is used as part of that intersectionality train, as a separate attribute to increase their value. Now, this improper understanding of what it means to be a Christian misses the most basic of understanding. It is really the most basic. In fact, one of the reasons some Christians have a hard time relating their Christianity to issues like racial harmony and justice is their view of what happens in their conversion. When they suddenly accept Christ as their Savior, they treat it as if it's a superficial thing. It is now just an image. It's a plaque to hang on the wall. It's more letters behind my name. It's something that sets me apart. In Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, Paul writes, Well then, now he's writing to those that have an understanding of who Christ is, right? And he says, Well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism, and just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also live new lives. That word new is in there. It's very important. See, the way uh, some people who profess to be Christians act can make you wonder if there's some distortion that has taken place somewhere. Paul writes um, about this distortion when he says, hey, should we just keep sinning so God could show his grace more? But he promptly answers that. See, salvation by grace through faith and there's no necessity to change you know whether we hate or mistreat people on the basis of race god forgives and gets more glory uh shows his grace more so it's all good right i don't need to change anything i just added the word christian uh to my name 
But if you have truly died to sin in Christ, how is it that the issue of your old self are going to continue to permeate your life? It means that you did not allow your old self to die. And you just kept carrying on. So you continue to sin through your thoughts and your deeds towards one another. You fool yourself. You're still looking for ways that you can set yourself apart from this person or that person. How many different attributes are different in me than in you? So if you're sitting around and you're comparing your experiences to my experience, yeah, guess what? They're not going to match up. Hallelujah. Just like... All right. So just like you don't want to experience what I've gone through, I do not want to experience what you've gone through. Because we, we don't lose who we are. When we take Christ as our Savior, we don't, we don't lose that part of us that made us who we are, that made us valuable in God's sight, right? God is the one that created us, and he created us, us each to have our own personal experiences. Praise God, we don't all have to touch fire separately to find out that it's hot. You go ahead and do that and just tell me I'll be okay with that. We each have things that do set us apart, but it is used for unity in Christ. Now, how exactly does that work, you wonder? How is it that we're set apart and unique, but we're all the same in Christ? Well, praise God, the body has many parts. Some of you are feet and some of you are hands. And woe to you who, though you are hands, try to be the nose because we will suffocate. We each individually have a part to play. It is like the choir singing a beautiful melody. The melody by itself is fine, right? It sounds good. But you haven't heard it until the harmonies kick in. All of us working together to produce a beautiful sound. If we're still sitting around comparing our experiences just to determine if we measure up or if we're more valuable, you're reveling in your sin. You have not given up your pride. You have not understood what has happened when you recognize the person of Christ and were made anew. In your old self, let's be honest, not even the best part of ourselves was worthy of the grace of God. In fact, what, what we read in Isaiah was Isaiah 64. I have a small note here, 5 and 6. Isaiah 64, 5 and 6, you welcome those who gladly do good, who follow godly ways, but you have been very angry with us for we are not godly. We are constant sinners. How can people like us be saved? We are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags. 
Like autumn leaves, we wither and fall, and our sins sweep us away like the winds. So the best part of us, the best part of us apart from God, even if we're righteous, without God, it's like filthy rags. What does that say about the other attributes that we would hold on to, that we would hold so dear, that we would raise above everything else? if even the best part of us is like filthy rags. What does it mean, then, to say that my self-identity is somehow more important to me than my relationship with God? I can spend my whole lifetime searching the whole world, backpacking through Europe, spending time in nature, in all the major metropolitan areas, become a true man of culture in the world. And without God, I will never find myself. I will find an empty shell of who I was created to be. True hope is found in one place. If we look at John chapter 17, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, in verse 20 through 26. I'll just read through 23. I am praying not only for those disciples, but also for all, all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all, all, be one. Just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you, and may they be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Now this is Jesus himself praying in the presence of his disciples to his Father. We can also look to see that this message continues on. You look at Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. It says, don't lie to each other. For you have stripped off your old sinful nature and all its wicked deeds. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric or uncivilized, a slave or free, Christ is all that matters. And he lives in all of us. To further strengthen that, you can look in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 5 in verse 14 through 18, it says, Either way, Christ's love controls us. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our old self. We have all died to our old self. 
He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. So we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view, how differently we know him now. Imagine that. It talks about evaluating others from a human point of view right here in God's word. It continues to say, the old life is gone and a new life has begun. And all this is the gift of God who brought us back to himself through Christ and God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. There's Paul's bold statement of what it means to be a Christian, you, you Christians, you have died. There's no exceptions. If you haven't died, let me be more blunt. If you haven't died, you're not a Christian. If you haven't died, you are not a Christian. To be converted to Christ is to be united by the Spirit of God to Christ in such a way that we die with him. It's a simple concept, right? In this sense, the convictions and impulses and drives and values, affections and passions, all these things that give us identity, that, that give us our experience in life, all of these things that we've counted as precious, are dealt a death blow by the Spirit of God. We are no longer identified as our old self, and we identify now with Christ. Issues arise when we try to continue to pull that baggage from our old life into our new life. If you are describing your Christianity with any type of definer, any adjective, if Christian is your noun and you allow an adjective to modify that noun of who you are, there's a problem. See, Christianity should not be modified by any label that we would apply for it. An adjective modifies a noun, so Christianity should not be our noun. So that means that we shouldn't have white Christians and black Christians and Asian Christians. We should have Christian men, Christian women. We should have Christian people. You should identify first and foremost with Christ. So Christ, Christian, should be the adjective that defines your noun, that changes your noun. It should not be the other way around. It must be primary and foremost in the makeup of who you are. The most apt description. Now, this doesn't eliminate your ethnicity, your roots, 
but it modifies those to come back into alignment to the way that God created you to be. See, it's been distorted through what it says in Romans 3.23 that we've all fallen short. There's a distortion that has taken place through sin. But through Christ, it is brought back into alignment. It is brought back to its appropriate level. It is fully realized as it was created to be from the start. In Colossians 3.11, it says in this New life, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or Gentile, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave, or free. Christ is all that matters, and Christ lives in all of us. This is a huge statement for the day that it was made, and it's a huge statement now. Greek and Jew were divided by ethnicity, religion, culture, and the gap between them was tremendous. And Paul says, where people have died with Christ and been created in a new image of God, this gap, this canyon, it will not stop love and fellowship. The reference to barbarians and uncivilized people is a reference to the way that the Romans and Greeks viewed anyone whose speech or manners or even their habits were foreign and considered unrefined because it didn't meet their arbitrary standards. So if you died with Christ and been created as a new self in the image of God, these kinds of differences do not stop love and fellowship. The reference to slave and free is a reference to the deepest divisions of class of human beings. And there are also the seeds to end slavery and the seeds to end any type of racism. But the crucial final word for us this morning is at the end of verse 11, right? It says, Christ is all that matters. He lives in all of us. If we take seriously the charge that we were all given in Matthew 28, if we take seriously the call in verses 18 through 20, when Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach these new disciples to obey all commands I have given you and be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We cannot help through that model to end Racism. Because what the world needs is not this theory or that theory from high academia. The world needs God. And it's not through applying these theories. It's not through going on marches. It's not through looting. It's not through arson. It's not through protests in the streets that the change that needs to take place in the world takes place. It is done individually, person to person, spending time making disciples in true relationship, drawing them through Christ back to God in right relationship that will change people's hearts. Stop applying Band-Aids. Get to the heart of the problem. 
True justice and true equal outcome is eternal life through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Let nothing separate us from that harmony. Let us be one with him as he is one with the Father. Put away your selfish identifiers. Stop looking to tear yourself and others apart for those individual experiences that you feel value you because they fall short. They're not consistent. They may last for the day, but by tomorrow, you're down in the dumps again. But praise God, I have an absolute truth that I was created in God's own image. And through his son, I've been reconciled in relationship to him. And through his son, and through the work of his son, I can be made whole. So the answer to racism and, in fact, all of the ails of the world is for Christians to stop being Christian only in names. To be Christians in reality. To realize that they are dead to self and created anew in Christ and we are all one of the same body. really simple yet for some reason it's so hard so I have some questions for you as we enter into our discussion time in our cell groups how does your origin in Adam and Eve and an understanding of the image of God shape your understanding of race so how does the your origin in, in Adam and Eve and the understanding of the image of God shape your understanding of race. Second question, what is the primary way you identify yourself? Think of those adjectives that you apply to that noun. And thirdly, how does your worldview? How does being one with Christ inform your worldview? Take opportunity to take time to discuss in your cell groups.